morning we're going to talk about getting it all together. I think it's not a bad topic when we think about the issue of unity. As you've been studying in Ephesians in these last weeks, one of the things that we come to terms with in Ephesians is uh, in the beginning to talk about the whole theological framework for the body of Christ. And now we talk about what that means in terms of the way we live together in these last three chapters. Jeremy said when he sent me a note, an email, he said, well, I know this is one of your favorite topics, the building of community and unity in the body of Christ. And it is one of my favorite topics because it's one of the most difficult things that we have to do to live together in unity. You know, if we're going to get it all together, we, we have to recognize what happens. Finally, it seems to me, as I, as I look at what's happened in the Celtics this year, I think they're finally getting it all together. At least they've gotten it together well enough so that they could finish uh, and, and go into the next level of the playoffs. We have to see what happens with the Nets. That may not be such a good story. But, but they've done a wonderful thing. They've gotten it all together. They've pulled the pieces together. And the boys of summer, at least if yesterday is any illustration, and Pedro's pitching well again, uh, this is not a bad kind of thing. It looks like maybe they have it together, at least for the first half of the season. We know what the last half of the season looks like. We're familiar with that already. We, we're, we're prepared for that, aren't we? And then, uh, and then uh, the, the Patriots seem to be getting it all together when they they recruiting some new, young, strong players that... that look like they might be able to put things together and maybe make another attempt at the playoffs. Well, in any case, uh, that's for the world of sports. And then, then as, we, as we look in the, in the international world, our, our minds have been drawn to Iraq in these last days. As we, as we look what's happened, the coalition forces try to put it all together and, and help develop a government in a country that has just been oppressed for decades develop a government that will be representative of the people. And, and our prayer is, and we need to continue to pray for that, that, that God is going to provide an opportunity for that to be a country where, where the, the Iraqi Christians will have some freedom themselves along with the others. Now, the lesson that we learn from all of these things, from sports, from, from uh, politics, from every area of life, is that if you're going to get it all together, if you're going to have unity, you have to have a common aim, a common goal, a common purpose, a common motivation, and you have to have a strategy that allows you to get there. And that's really what Paul's talking about as, as we come to this text. I was thinking, however, you know, that, that all of us have personal lessons to learn. Uh, Rich mentions that I grew up down east on the coast of Maine. Uh, as, a, as a young boy, I, I remember one of the few vacations that our family took. It was an interesting kind of time. We, we didn't take many vacations. We were not, I grew up right after the Great Depression, and so there wasn't a lot of money. So a, a family vacation was rare. And we took a vacation down on the beach, not far actually from our house, down to a place called Cooper's Beach. And uh, for a little boy who grows up on the ocean, we had, we had a boat to play with. Not, not just any boat, but a big, old, heavy, flat-bottomed rowboat. Uh, and some of you know about those, and uh, I thought it would be a wonderful thing. So I convinced my dad, who was a stalwart guy, I convinced him that he would let me row from the beach there at Cooper's Beach across the harbor, a mile and a half or so, to, to the public landing. Now, I don't know if many of you have rowed any of these old flat-bottom boats, but a mile and a half is an endurance contest. I was nine years old. I thought I could certainly make it. And I started out, I've 
was kind of right-handed, and, and uh, you know what happens when you pull on one oar most of the time. <laughs> you don't make a lot of forward progress. You do make progress, but it's quite circular. And uh, so that's what I was doing. And Dad, who was ever so patient, said, now look, son. He said, you look right over my head and right over the transom, and you fix something right behind it, and you just keep that right in the center of the transom, and you'll be able to make progress. And indeed, we did. He had a strategy for how to get ahead. And uh, in his patience, I would like to tell you that I rode the whole mile and a half, but I didn't uh, because it seemed like a long time and my arms were circular practice that I had near the beach. But when we come to the text today from Ephesians, uh, the Apostle Paul continues this incredible teaching that he has about uh, practical teaching about how we may live in unity. Um, and so he writes... Um, beginning at the first verse, but we're going to read through verse 3. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Unity has a funny sound, doesn't it? It sounds funny. Now, I, Jan and I grew up in a Baptist church, and so unity sounds funny to Baptists uh, because we know how to disagree, we know how to politicize, we know how to conflict. Uh, unity feels kind of weak and lackluster compared to some of the battles that we can have in our meetings. So we ask Paul, what in the world are you talking about? Are you talking to Baptists? Are you talking about people who attend a Baptist church, that they should have unity? And Paul would say to you, yes, exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking to you. Now Paul's reminding us here as he calls us to unity that we're to live out our calling, a calling worthy of the Lord who's called us out of darkness into light, to live a life worthy of the calling of God who's called us out of darkness into his light a call to put it all together, to practice what we preach, so that what we say we possess in faith, we practice in our lives. What we say we possess in faith, we practice in our lives. So it's not just words that we say, it's not just songs that we sing, it's the life that we live. Because it's easy to say the words, it's easy to sing the songs, it's difficult to live the life. James, in that wonderful epistle of his, reminds us that he said, I will show you my faith by what I do. I'll show you my faith by my works. And so God calls us. He calls you and me to show faith by works. And so Paul's going to help us understand this. Jesus reminds us that we show faith by what we do. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that we have certain characteristics of faith. Now, what does unity look like, anyway? Because unity is an interesting word, and when we talk about that, we wonder, what in the world would unity look like if we were going to be a unified people? What would a Christian community that was unified look like? What would South Shore look like if you were a unified community? Would we think the same thoughts? Would we all be kind of thinking the same thoughts at the same time? Would we have that kind of unity? Would we all do the same things? Would we all wear the same clothes? Would we be simply clones of one another? Would we have to give up individuality and become just sort of robots and automatons? And the answers are resounding, no. No, because that's not what unity is all about. It's not groupthink. It's not being the same. It's not all looking the same. It's not all talking the same, addressing the same. It's all having the same focus in our lives. 
Our lives would be characterized, as, as Seth reminded us this morning in our prayer, by a supernatural event in which the Holy Spirit of God would cause us to live lives of mutual love and caring for one another. That's really the heart of unity. And to grow out of a profound respect for the uniqueness of each individual and God's unique calling in your life, each one. That's what unity would look like. It was said of the early church, behold how those Christians love one another. Now why in the world would they say that? Because it was an unusual thing for people to live together in community to learn how to love one another, to live together in that way. It was a remarkable kind of thing. It was true of the early church, as you read in Acts 2, at the end of that chapter in Acts 2.42 and following, they talked about some of the things that happened in that church. And I want to tell you that this is a costly kind of thing. To have unity, as Paul's calling us here to have unity, is not a cheap kind of thing. It's not something we can say, okay, we're all together. No, this requires real work. They met together, it said, and they listened first to teaching, to the apostles' teaching. They gave themselves to that. So a people who have unity are people who are learning people, a people who are concerned about grasping the truth, of understanding what the Scripture has to say and how it applies to their lives. People who have unity are disciplined to be under the obedience of the teaching of the Word of God. They have a wonderful start on that here, but that's a very important thing. It's one thing to hear, another thing to do. People who are in unity, he said, also care for one another. They Pray together. One of the difficult things, I think, in our lives is learning to develop within the community a culture of prayer. Prayer is sometimes hard work. One of the things that's lacking in New England congregations and in congregations across the United States is that we do not have a culture of prayer. We do not have a sense that prayer is essential, that we ought to meet together and pray. Oh, yeah, some of us pray privately. Some of us even pray for our meals. But, uh, but the reality is that... that having a culture of prayer. This is what characterized the early church, because it's impossible to meet in the presence of a holy God and have that intimate relationship with God and not have a loving, intimate relationship with one another. So the people who pray together work together, and then they observed, they observed this communion every week as they met together in the first day of the week. We've sort of given that up, but, but, but uh, it's one of those things that the early Christians did because they wanted to remember what Christ had done for them. And then they were very much involved in each other's lives. We read on in Acts that, that there was nothing, there was no person in the community that had a need that was unmet. Now I want you to remember that. There was no person in the community that had a need that was unmet. Think about that. Are there persons in this community who have needs that are unmet? Needs at a personal level, needs at a physical level, needs at, at an emotional level that are unmet. Are there persons in the community like this? Of course there are. In that early church, how was it possible for them to have so much concern? It's because they were willing to do the thing that builds unity. They were willing to do the thing that creates unity, and that is they were willing to spend time with one another. At the very heart of Christian community, at the very heart of Christian unity, is a willingness to be involved in each other's lives. Now, that kind of goes against the, the grain of the New England conscience and an old Yankee community like Hingham and the surrounding area. It kind of goes against that grain to spend time together because we are really individualists. We, we have good boundaries. As the poet said, good fences make good neighbors, and uh, good, fences, 
Good points, good fences make poor Christians. And so Paul reminds us what we need to do to get it all together to have unity. And so he says that there are, there are four characteristics. He lists them for us there. The first, he said, is one that I thought we could skip over because we already understand this. But we won't skip over it because it's an important one, and that is humility. It's a, this is a tough one, humility. It's a tough one to have humility. Humility was originally a term that was a term of degradation. It was a term that was, was of civility. It was not a term that was used very much. But Christ transformed that term because Christ took upon himself human form. He became obedient unto death, even death on the cross, as, as Paul reminds the Philippians in that second chapter. And so you have to ask yourself how this contrasts, how this humility contrasts with what's really important. Someone's doing a survey of what women wanted in men. I thought I'd read the survey to see if I could help, but after 47 years of marriage, I think it's probably too late, Jan, so I, we'll, but, but I'll work on it. Well, what, what women wanted in men were, first of all, confidence, strength, and tenderness. Isn't that interesting? Confidence, strength, and tenderness. Now you have to ask, that, that combination is an important thing. Confidence, we understand. Confidence is kind of, because anyone who drives on the Southeast Expressway any length of time has confidence, or they're just reckless, I don't know which, or maybe both. Uh, and, and, and strength, we understand strength, because, you know, Pastor Jeremy is, uh, is, a, is a metal man. He pushes up a lot of stuff. And, uh, but tenderness... Tenderness, that's an important thing. I suppose, and as I look back over these years at the, at the work that I've done, all these years in working with people, working with couples, working with marriages that were in trouble, the thing that characterizes marriages in conflict, now you won't know anything about this, but let me tell you, just in case you run into people who have this, the thing that characterizes marriages that are in conflict is, is a lack of tenderness, a lack of compassion, a lack of, of really understanding this, this trait of humility, because sometimes I think it's, it's replaced with, with arrogance, and arrogance destroys tenderness and humility. Romans 12 reminds us that we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than our character provides opportunity for thinking about ourselves, but rather we should think about ourselves with sober judgment, because true confidence leads to humility. True confidence in who we are as children of God, true confidence in who we are as members of the body of Christ, true confidence leads us to confident humility. False confidence leads us to boasting and spinning, trying to make things come out the way they ought to come, and essentially winds up lying. Some people who are arrogant maintain their position of power by humiliating others. The opposite of humility. We, we laugh at that sometimes. Some of you will remember the, the old comedian Don Rickles, who, who's, who's, whose primary mode of operation was, was to humiliate other people. And we laugh at that. We would think that was funny. And, and then, of course, there's a program like uh, Weakest Link. And, uh, and you know, and, and they're dismissed with, a, with, a, with a, a wave of the hand about being, who wants to be the weakest link? Anyway, so, so the issue of what we see in our culture, that's kind of looked down upon to anyone who isn't really strong, who doesn't really work out. But true humility acknowledges one's own identity without losing sight of the real goal. 
John the Baptist had it all together when he said of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. When Pastor Jeremy uh, was first called to this church, the first sermon that he preached when he was called to this church was based on that text in John. I remember the sermon. I was fortunate enough to be able to hear it. His text was, I am not the Christ, and he must increase, but I must decrease. Because true humility for every leader, for every Christian, must be based on not who we are, but who we are in Christ. You've learned a lot about that as you think about Paul's early teaching in the early chapters of Ephesians, which you've studied already. When we have true humility, we celebrate the gifts of others. We rejoice in the gifts of others so that those gifts can serve us well. The second characteristic of a person who has humility is gentleness. And this has primarily to do with being considerate. Putting others first is a challenge. It doesn't come easily. Uh, try this. You're in rush hour traffic. <laughs> yes, you know. And you're driving along the road, and, and perhaps you're even here during rush hour, and you're trying to get out of this parking lot, right? Or you're driving along, and there are people trying to get out of this parking lot, and you're in a hurry to get home. You want to see the wife and kids because you love them so much. And, and so, so, so you, and, and you're in a hurry to get home, and someone's nosing out of the parking lot, and they want to get in the line of traffic. What do you do? What would a gentle person do? <laughs> well, Gentleness is really a phrase of strength under control. There was a commercial. Um, I like commercials because they really speak a lot of truth. There was an old commercial by a lubricant called Bardol, and that had this character who was a, had a, a scraggly, unshaven person uh, with a, a big uh, striped shirt on, and the phrase underneath was tough but oh so gentle. That really is what gentleness is. That's what meekness is. It's being strong but being gentle in one's strength. The disciples had conflict over uh, who was the greatest, and Jesus reminded them that the person who was to be greatest in the kingdom would be servant of all. And Jesus demonstrated that when he took off his outer garment in that last supper and girded himself with a towel and took on the role of the lowliest servant. Now, we forget sometimes that that was a task that that not every servant would do. Only, only the servant who was the bottom of the rung of servants would wash people's feet. Jesus took the role of the person who was the lowest rung. You know, in a, in a culture where we compare ourselves to others, where we want to be, where we want to be special, where we want to out, be outstanding, where we want to be unique, it's very hard for us to, to, uh, to not want to be at the top. It's kind of hard for us to be at the bottom. But gentleness contributes to the body of Christ and contributes to unity because Jesus is reminding us that who would be greatest in the kingdom must first be willing to be least. Because when Jesus was abased, the scripture says, God exalted him. And so we need to be willing to be Christ-like in our gentleness, to be willing to serve others if we're going to have the kind of unity. And then one that I thought I would not talk about, because this is the toughest one for me, I think, if I would, I'm not going to confess this, but, but this is an illustration, it's not true, Rich knows it's not true, but, but uh, and this is patience, patience, uh, this is a characteristic that I can personally skip over, because I've really mastered that already, uh, this has been a struggle for me all along, some of you who know me know that patience is a struggle, 
I excuse myself because I'm a type A personality, and type A's cannot be patient. You just want to hurry things up. Traffic, I talk a lot in traffic. Jen says to me as we drive along, why are you talking to them? They can't hear you. <laughs> well, I'm hoping they can. But when it's bumper to bumper traffic, and you're talking to them and saying, why are you dragging so much? Why are you allowing 10 feet between you and that other car? Why don't you move up? Another word for patience, however, is really something we can understand a little bit more, long-suffering. Lewis Smedes in his book, uh, Love Within Limits, A Realist Guide to 1 Corinthians 13, said, long-suffering is enduring what we want very much not to endure. Because the key to unity is enduring the personalities, the sharp edges, the difficulties of people that we want very much not to endure. If you think about people you have a difficult time with, and you're going to invite people uh, uh, for a cookout at your house, you can think of names that you want to leave off that list. Now, I'm not saying you should invite them to the cookout, but I'm simply saying that, that, that long-suffering is, is to be able to be with someone that you want very much not to be with. One of the attributes of God is, is that, that he is patient. Did you ever think about that? One of the great characteristics of God is that he is patient. God, who is holy and just, withholds his justice and wrath and bestows upon us, rather than what we really deserve, his punishment and his judgment. He bestows upon us his grace and his mercy and his love. He doesn't give us what we deserve because God is patient with us. The psalmist reminds us that God is full of compassion and slow to anger. God does not exercise his judgment on a fallen creation. You know, in a congregation, how many people do you think it takes to be impatient, to upset the whole bulk of the congregation? One or two. Is it possible? I know it's not possible here, but in congregations that I've served, uh, it not this one, but, but in congregations I've served, there, there always can be one or two impatient people. And they can cause disunity rather than unity. And so one of the characteristics that we have to learn is how to be patient. Unity within the body of Christ requires a spirit-empowered patience. Now, it doesn't come naturally to most of us. We're not naturally very patient people. But if we would just be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to speak clearly to us, and to be patient with the people who need our patience the most. Well, the final characteristic is forbearance. Perhaps this is one of the most powerful characteristics of the congregation that builds unity, the ability to bear with one another, not to put up with one another, <laughs> but the ability to bear with one another in love. Forbearance is a willingness to walk with another person with whom we disagree. We don't need to agree with them, but we need to be willing to walk with them to pray with them, to work with them, to listen to them, to walk in unity with a person with whom we disagree. This does not mean that we don't confront, and sometimes we need to confront. Paul said to the Galatians, listen, if a person's overtaken in a fall, you that are spiritual. Well, that certainly includes all of us. Well, maybe not. You that are spiritual, restore that person with a spirit of meekness, considering yourselves, because you also could fall flat on your own beak. 
well, he didn't say it quite, that's the revised Pendleton version, but the, the great church father Christosom says, forbearance is a characteristic of one who has the power to take revenge, but never does. One who has the power to take revenge, but, but never does. The motive for bearing with one another is the motive of love. It's not the kind of mushy, romantic feeling that, that's wonderful this time of year, but, 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 but it, it's, it's the kind of godly love that is unconditional. That's the motive for forbearance. Unity is found in being willing to let love dominate rather than the ugly side of self-centeredness and selfishness. All of us understand what it is to be self-centered and selfish. All of us have that little kind of thing within ourselves and say, I want it my way. But unity in the body of Christ means being willing to let it go. I've seen relationships destroyed, congregations fragmented, people's lives blown apart by a failure to bear with another person in love. Colossians, as it comes to the end of all that chapter says, Paul says to the Colossians, and over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In Galatians, when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he begins with love and ends with self-control. These are the bookends of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, which is the foundation for unity. So the congregation, the community that has it all together quickly is to make every effort, because unity does not come easily. Make every effort. There's a kind of, this English doesn't really help us a whole lot here, but to make every effort, it talks about struggling to make unity possible. This is a constant struggle for, for inner control. It allows us to put others before ourselves. It's reflected in what Paul's going to teach later on when you come to the fifth chapter of Ephesians, and he talks about one of the evidences of being filled with the Spirit is to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. I personally understand this struggle. I'm a stubborn person. I want my own way. A couple of years ago, when our congregation, or some people in our congregation, decided to end a Saturday night service that I had led, a liturgical service I had led for seven years, without any input from me, and I was angry. You say, you're still angry? No, I was angry then. And it was easy for me to be divisive, though. People said, let's do something different, let's do something else, let's change things, let's do something else. But, but, and, and I really wanted to do that. Because, to tell you the truth, I was really hurt. And you know who we're hurt? We want to get even. You say, you? Yes, I was hurt, and I wanted to get even. But the Holy Spirit set me free. Because it took a work of God in my heart, because I could not naturally do that. I'm not here to tell you how, what a great job I did. I'm here to tell you that if God had not given me his special grace, I would have done some really stupid things. You say, well, you're an old man. You do stupid things. Well, stupidity has no age boundaries, you know. It's, uh, we're all good at that. But instead, God led me to a prayer ministry to begin to develop within our, our congregation a prayer culture, and, and, to, and to begin a school of prayer, um, which has as its really foundation, building unity. Peace is the bond that makes it possible. But peace is not a passive word. It's a word that reflects our struggle for balance and equanimity in a community. The same powerful relationship that God has in his love for us needs to be reflected in an incarnational way in our concern for each other. 
in his great high priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus prays that we might have unity as the triune God has unity. That we might be one as Christ and the Father are one. That's his prayer for us. That's his desire for us. That's his goal for us. To have unity means that we're willing to embrace the need for humility and forbearance and patience and to gird ourselves with the love of God that sets us free to be one in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your calling in our lives. And we acknowledge before you even now that we're so capable of being divisive. And yet we know that by your spirit you're calling us to be a people whose lives are characterized by love and grace and mercy, even as your love and grace and mercy have fallen upon our lives. So teach us, gracious God, what it means to live together in peace, in unity, and in love. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.